somewhere between waking and sleeping. On our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness, venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 41 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a semi and hopefully increasingly regular podcast of Curious Tales from BordersofSleep.com featuring original stories by your host, Seymour Jacklin. You can visit bordersofsleep.com for more information, to leave some feedback, or you can even buy me a coffee. You can find us on Facebook as well, so come and join the conversation there, or lurk if you wish. The beautiful soundtrack for this week's episode is by pianist Chad Lawson, from his album of Chopin variations arranged for piano, violin and cello. It's available from magnitude.com. So, if you are ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. Horseless Carriage by Seymour Jacklin So far, it had worked. Albert, going to live with Danny and Sarah. Young Felix was delighted, of course, and he couldn't get enough of his grandfather's company as long as they got out of his way every so often, so he could rest, all was well. Most weekends they had found something to do, the four of them. The Saturday after his 90th birthday, they were visiting Morley Hall. The castle and grounds were open to the public, and they expected to find enough to interest each of them at their respective stages of life. However, Felix had been getting fractious and fed up, with the dawdling of the adults over, quote, every blade of grass. His eyes had lit up, however, when Albert had suggested that there might be dragonflies down by the lake. Any kind of dragon was going to be worth all the grass gazing in the world. Then Felix insisted that just his mother came with him to hunt for the flyer dragons. Danny and Albert were left with a little time to poke around in the grounds and gravitated towards a long garage filled with old cars lined up in chronological order. The first one they came to was a horseless carriage, as gleaming as the day it was made. The neat white card propped up against a tyre assigned it Daimler 1906. From the shiny black leather of the seats to the polished brass of the fixtures. With its crimson trim and painted ironwork, this beast declared itself monstrously beautiful. The wicker basket on the back was for fishing expeditions and Sunday picnics. The hard-spoked tyres, hardly an improvement on the old wooden cartwheels that preceded them, were made to feel every bump in the road and bounce the po-faced dignity out of any passenger. Albert was old enough to remember riding in one of these, He couldn't suppress a thrill. Up on the driver's box, in the open air, had felt so high up 
and the trees and the hedgerows whipping by, close enough to touch, and the heady bitter fumes of petrol, the roaring of the engine, here was a dragon to ride. He recapitulated the wind in his hair and trying to keep his seat on every jolt in the road. How awfully enclosed transportation had become, how cushioned and separated from the surroundings. No ride in a modern motor car could ever come close to the feeling. A carnival of memories caught him up and carried him in its wake. He didn't hear Danny calling his name. Oh, how those wheel spokes would play with the light, flickering like a movie reel. Dad! Dad! Hey! Dad, look here! Albert looked. Danny was leaning on the snouty bonnet of a classic four-door Ford sedan from 1940, striking a baronial pose like he just bought it. Fingerprints, Danny, Albert exclaimed. Sorry, Dad, said Danny. But isn't it a dame? Albert laughed. They passed on down the line of cars, covering 70 years of automotive history in 15 lingering minutes. As they exited the far end of the building, the sun burnt out their vision for a moment, and they paused on the sharp white gravel, reorienting themselves to August 1987. Families were lounging on the grass in front of the grand façade of the castle. They scanned down the hill towards the lake where Sarah and Felix had been heading the last time they saw them. Maybe we should head down there and see where they got to, said Danny. Albert nodded, but his knees were hurting. I think I'll take a seat here for a bit so you'll know where to find me, he said. Then suddenly Danny seemed reluctant to go. Albert sat down on a bench and squinted up as his son. Standing up, Danny was a head shorter than his father, and almost twice as wide. He'd shot up as a kid, and been a beanpole until his teens when he slowed down and began to fill outwards, more like his mum. They were very rarely alone together since Sarah, and even less since Felix. Albert sensed his reluctance to break the father-son spell that they'd cast between them looking at the cars. Just then, Felix's voice came from behind him. Did you see the peacocks, Grandad? Albert turned stiffly to look over his shoulder at the boy and his mother coming up from the opposite direction to the lake. Felix tipped himself over the back of the bench and wriggled upright next to Albert. No, I didn't see the peacocks, chap. But I hope you made a wish, because peacocks are very lucky birds. You know that, don't you? No, I didn't know, Felix wailed, looking bug-eyed at his grandfather. Sarah caught up. She was stooping with mock weariness. She rolled her eyes. We never made it to the lake, she said. I think the peacocks trumped the dragonflies. Felix stood up in front of his grandfather and stuck his tummy out in front of him. It was all part of his adorable little tyrant act. Grandad's coming with me to make a wish for peacocks, he announced, pointing at Albert with one arm and shading his eyes with the other hand like a salute. Albert cranked himself upright. Are they far away? he asked. Over there, said Felix, pointing again. Go on then, said Albert. Sarah threw him a look of relief as she sat on the bench and waved them away. Felix's little hand was a long way down. Albert stooped so Felix could cling to his forefinger, and the pair shuffled off 
where Felix had pointed. You'll have to go slowly for your granddad's knees, Albert reminded him. Felix fell into step beside him. Good kid. They passed under the shade of a pair of spreading Lebanon cedars, soft underfoot with green moss and brown fallen needles. Then the parkland dropped away, so they were soon out of sight of mum and dad on the bench. Below them, billows of rhododendron bushes broke the green sweep of lawn up to the fence line. Beyond that, the deer park spread out upon a steepening horizon as far as the woods beyond with a few lone chestnuts against the yellowy grass of the slope, proudly spreading their perfect ink-blot symmetry. There's one, cried Felix, dropping to one knee like a rifleman. Albert's eyes were not as good as Felix's, but he saw movement against the background of the rhododendrons. Then, as if it had heard them, the peacock turned towards them and lazily opened the fan of its tail, like a magician displaying a deck of cards stood there, iridescent and architecturally symmetrical, the feathers of its tail quivering in a wind that wasn't there. Make a wish, Grandad. Close your eyes and make a wish. Faintly the sound of a lawnmower came to them through the summer heat. Albert closed his eyes and saw the horseless carriage again, roaring down a country lane. What I wouldn't give to ride that machine again, he thought but wishing was for kids. He opened his eyes again. Did you make a wish, Grandad? Albert looked at the little boy. I did, he said. Me too. Guess what I wished, said Felix. Albert put a finger over his mouth. You must not tell me or anyone, he said. For the magic to work, it has to be a secret. Felix stopped his lips with a theatrical gurn, and his disappointment lasted less than a second before his eyes glowed afresh with the fire of his new secret. The next day was flooded with sun too. On Sunday afternoons, Danny and Sarah usually took Felix to the swimming pool, and Albert pottered with cups of tea and a nap. Today he was itching to find something he hoped was preserved in the trunk at the foot of his bed, where the keepsakes of his life were preserved. Albert knelt next to the old trunk. He'd not lifted its lid since Jean had passed away. The top layer was filled with bundles of yellowing sheets of paper, some of them in plastic bags and others bound with hard, flaky old elastic bands. There were letters and press clippings, deeds and documents sent from the past to be the last surviving witnesses to so many memories. They smelt of damp wood and glue and were impregnated with the speckles and brown clouds of ageing paper pulp. Albert pushed aside the bittersweet clench that tightened in his chest and took out fistfuls of paper, laying them beside him. The rest of the contents were in shoe boxes and other reused packaging, respectively labelled ornaments, tableware, photographs. Jean was down there, here in this deep litter of touchstones waiting to relive the minute moments of their life together that nobody else knew of. He didn't want to disturb those things right now. In time, when he was ready, if ever he was ready, they would be there for him. He surveyed the boxes with his fingertips, disturbing them as little as possible to peek underneath. There, this was promising. 
he felt the old velour of a photo album and hauled it out. Many of the photographs had come unstuck from the black pages. One fell out as he lifted it clear from the boxes. Yes, he whispered. That was the one. The little black and white rectangle was instantly filled with colour, remembering that moment. Two young men sat bolt upright atop a vintage contraption of uncertain make. It was an early model of the sort that countless factories had sprung up to produce, feeding the fashion for speed in the early 1900s. Ned, his old pal, grasped the tiny steering wheel that started straight out of the floor at their feet. His face was shaded by a tweed cap. Albert sat next to him with his insect-like legs awkwardly folded. Their flawless white faces looked straight at the camera. Albert's was fine, stroked with a line of a serious mouth, eyebrows mournful. Ned was smiling so that his cheeks bulged a little. Yes, said Albert to himself, passing his thumb gently over his friend's face in the picture. Ned, the speedster, the jovial Sancho to Albert's sparse quixotic outline. Ned, racing to glory in a French field, now resting under a simple white cross. The day the photograph was taken glowed in Albert's mind. How they had ruled those summer lanes, scattering pheasants upwards with choked cries from the hedgerows, coursing through dappled shadows under the spreading oaks. Feeling it all, feeling it, the warm road, the hot engine, the cooling breeze of speed, the living veins of roadways that would take them anywhere they wanted to go. Albert replaced the bundles of paper and closed the lid of the trunk. Then he stood and took the photograph over to his dresser. He propped it up against a tea caddy and paused, staring at it for a long time. It could have been one minute or twenty. Such timeless moments happened with increasing frequency for Albert when something in his mind would stop him like a broken clock and sort of kick him out of time. Usually he found himself deep in his memory, and that's where he went now, leaving his body standing in front of the dresser. Scenes didn't come to him in chronological order, but cut and faded on their own logic. He'd not thought of Ned for a long time. It had always hurt to think of Ned, and the howling empty space that had replaced all the dreams and plans they'd had back in the spring of 2014. As soon as he saw bayonets and marching boots, he stopped and rewound himself back, back to the moment when Ned had pulled up on the driveway in the rumbling contraption, squawked the klaxon and yelled at him to climb aboard, grinning at the totality of his assault on the stillness of the morning. Noise. It was so commonplace these days, but back then it was a whole lot of fun. It was different. Something odd happened just then. Albert slowly brought his attention back to the present moment, but he could still hear the sound of an engine. It was coming from the front of the house, the rhythmic putter of an idling motor, something heavy-sounding, like a tractor. Albert shuffled to the front room and looked out of the window. The house was on a terrace facing straight onto the street in a part of the village that had been built to house mill workers at the turn of the century. Albert caught his breath. 
stopped outside in the street was a chokingly familiar sight, with sunlight glaring off its brass, the swell of its lines from the front plate to the high seats at the back, outlined with royal red on stagecoach black in stately French curved proportions. It brashly imposed itself upon the sleepy afternoon, oddly compact, and seeming to tip forward on its rear wheels with a low head and high back, like a charging bull stopped in its tracks. Well, I'll be damned, Albert said out loud. Up on top, the flat-capped driver caught sight of him in the window and waved for him to come out. If this was a dream, Albert didn't care. But it seemed all too tactile for that. He opened the door and went out. Albert's knees forgot themselves for a moment as he put one foot on the riding plate and pulled himself up beside the driver. Where to? the driver asked, looking up at Albert from his hunched position. His face was creviced and gnomish, dominated by a bulging nose and chin that made his gleaming eyes and tight lips seem tiny. His face was shaded with patchy stubble. It could have been Ned. Plus sixty years, Albert was thinking. I'm Albert. How do you do? he said, offering his hand. The driver gripped it for a moment with a leather-gloved squeeze that seemed firm and real enough. Magnus, he said simply. Pleased to meet you. It's not Ned, thought Albert, but it could be. Splendid, he said, raising his voice over the churning of the motor. The man was wearing a dark green tweed jacket and moleskin trousers, heavy for the time of year. Where to? he asked again. Onwards, said Albert, pointing ahead with a salute to the open road. Magnus pumped the clutch with practised ease, and the scenery began to roll. There was nobody about to see them trundle out of the village, past the churchyard and on down the lane between the hedgerows and the gates. Another shift of gears and Albert felt the breeze in the few remaining wisps of his hair. The engine puttered, smooth and content like a sewing machine. Albert felt his heart bloom out with the exhilaration as if it would gather all the fields to him with every breath. This was speed. This was living. Is this yours? he asked directly in Magnus's ear. Ah, oh, no. It belongs to my boss, Mr. Peacock. But he sent me over and said to take you wherever you wanted to go. Peacock. What a funny coincidence, thought Albert. Oh, does he live at Morley Hall? Magnus fixated on a bend in the road and seemed not to hear him. Albert decided to let it go. He couldn't remember the routes that he and Ned had driven back in the day, but he knew these roads well, and it was only a mile or so to the house where he'd grown up. He directed left at a fork, and they plunged down into the greeny shade of beech woods on a long slope to the valley bottom, where the road twined along by a broad stream, fringed with clumps of bulrushes and poached patches of mud where the cows came to drink. A low wall on the near side signalled to Albert that they were close to his old home. There it was. The red brick cottage behind the gates had lost a few surrounding trees, but still there were four familiar walls, white windows and the slate roof enclosing a million memories. Nevertheless, the gates were closed to him. Someone else lived there now. Somehow that's all Albert needed to convince him that he was not dreaming all this. It was real. 
It was really now. They were past the cottage in a flicker and on up the lane, feeling every yard and every second of motion in space and time. Albert drank a full draught of the sweetness of that afternoon. Dizzying, yet refreshing like a long glass of cider, it went to every capillary and fibre. He hadn't dreamt it would be possible to feel like this again, so washed through and so free. By the time they found themselves back in the street outside Danny and Sarah's, he was endowed with a lasting glow of contentment. Magnus glided them to a stop. Thank you, said Albert, patting his shoulder with a shaking hand and putting all the heart he could into her words. Magnus winked at him. Same time next week, he said. A statement more than a question. Oh, yes. Same time next week, said Albert. He'd run out of words, so he just said thank you again. As he climbed down, his left leg failed him and he went down on one knee. Albert just chuckled at himself and staggered upright again. He put one hand on the front door handle and turned to look back as Magnus reached for the clutch. Please tell Mr Peacock my heartfelt thanks, he called. Of course, called Magnus above the rising clatter of the motor as he engaged it and moved off. See you next week.